Thank you so much, band. And um, well, this morning we find ourselves in chapter two in the book of Judges, and um, uh, chapter two really serves as a second introduction uh, to the book. Um, in chapter one, we saw that it really started off pretty well. Uh, God's people were seeking the will of God. They were submitting to God. All that was great. But things begin to very quickly go very, very wrong. Uh, the people begin to no longer entrust themselves to an all-sufficient God, but rather they begin to become self-sufficient and begin to do what was right in their own eyes. So now in chapter 2, we're going to see a clearer picture, really, of the spiritual well-being, or, or the not-so-good spiritual well-being, I guess, of the Israelites in chapter 2. And uh, what we're going to do is, is it's actually going to lay out for us, really, a cycle that we're going to see play out time and time again through the book, especially through verses 3 through 12. Um, this cycle is a cycle of sin. And the cycle really begins this way. It begins with God's people rebelling against God, God becoming angry with them, uh, the people being oppressed uh, by their enemies, the people repenting to get out of that oppression, God raising up a leader who delivers them, and then finally, guess what happens? It starts all over again. They sin against, they sin and rebel against God once again. And what we're going to do is, is this cycle is seen over and over again. For that reason, I didn't really want to camp out on this portion of chapter 2, uh, because by the time we get to the end of the book, uh, you're going to be overly familiar with that sinful cycle that goes on. So instead, what I want to do is I want to really reflect on a smaller passage of Scripture, really in the beginning of chapter 2 in verses 6 through 10, which I think is helpful for ones because, as you can see, we have the Lord's Supper today, and it's always a challenge for me. I got to tell you, it's a challenge for me uh, every time we have the Lord's Supper to try to get a message in and get everything in. You guys got that, right? And so what happened is I, I was going to actually skip all the way over this, these verses 6 through 10. But as I begin to kind of move past them and begin to keep reading through chapter 2, I kept gravitating back to that section. And, and there's one verse especially, and, and we're going to go over it in just a minute. There's one verse especially that is a bit haunting and, and, and really kind of disturbing. And, and we're going to get in that great, you, you came to church and like, what did you preach on? Something really disturbing. We are really encouraged this morning. So uh, we're going to look at that in just a moment. Let me just kind of lay out for you what's happening in verses 6 through 10. Uh, the author of Judges is really just kind of explaining and describing two different, completely two different generations. And the first generation is really viewed and pictured in, in really high esteem in, in, in really a good way. Uh, we read of them that this is the generation that was led and followed the leadership of Joshua himself, okay? And so the Bible says of them in the beginning of verse 7, uh, it defines them as people who served the Lord. That's pretty good to be known as. That was the generation that served the Lord. And they were faithful not only during the time of Joshua, but also they continued to serve the Lord after the death of Joshua as well. So they served the Lord. And the second part of verse 7 also tells us that they were people who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. So these people had, were around when God divided uh, the River Jordan and they passed through on dry ground. Uh, they saw God knock the walls down of Jericho and they can continue to see the mighty acts of God as they begin to go in and take over and drive out the inhabitants of Canaan. They've seen a lot of things. Now, now stop and think about this for a moment. They've, they, they're, they're defined as people who serve the Lord 
They saw and were a part of the great acts of God. They saw it with their own eyes. So, so far, everything looks good. But as Tim Keller points out in his commentary on this book, I think very well, he says, but that's really disturbing that he's picturing these people in a good light. The reason is, is because when we read about them from Joshua's perspective, who was leading them, wasn't so positive. When you go back to Joshua chapter 24, Joshua said of those very people that they had a tendency to worship foreign gods. And he said that they were unable to serve the Lord. Last week, we saw that they had all kinds of negative qualities that we pointed out. Sometimes they failed to see just how big God was. They suffered from small God syndrome. Their faith wasn't big enough in him. Uh, They also struggled from really compromising. They, They mostly obeyed God, but when they didn't, sometimes they didn't obey God because they thought that it would somehow be advantageous for them not to obey and to do what God calls us to do. And then finally we saw last week is that they felt bad about their sin, but it was a shallow repentance. They never really did business with God and truly repented in their hearts many times. Uh, they just kept struggling in sin. So, so what are we to make of that generation, right? I mean, on one side, when you look at their whole lives, uh, they're on this trajectory where they're serving God and, and they're seeing the great works of God and they're being a part of all that. But when you take a closer look into their lives, you see people who are constantly struggling with temptation and sin of just about every kind. What do you call people like that? Well, you call them sinners saved by grace. That's what you call them, right? I don't know about you, but that's exactly, I think, what my life looks like. I I mean, I think... Yes, I struggle. I don't know if that helps you or not, or if you're depressed that your pastor is constantly struggling against sin. And by the way, I will until the day that I see Jesus face to face. And by the way, FYI, you will too, all right? So don't look all spiritual at me, all right? You will too. We're all in this process. But here's the great thing is I am not, you are not who you ought to be. You are not who you're going to be. But here's the great thing. You're not who you used to be. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, when I look back from the time and step back and look over all, there has been a trajectory that has been set for the purposes of God. I bet you you can do the same. So here are believers in God. They are, our modern vernacular would be they're Christians, okay? That's what we would basically call them Old Testament believers. And so what are they doing? They, they're just not perfect. They struggle with a lot of things. Now, my question is this. For people who are described as people who the way that I just described them, if that's how you describe the most godly generation, then what words will we ultimately use to describe a godless generation? Well, we see that in verse 10. In verse 10, listen to what it says. It says, and there arose, by the way, this is the disturbing part, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. All right, so catch this. Generation before, all seem to know God, all seem to be working for God, all seem to be on page with God with his big redemptive plan for mankind. The next whole generation, they don't know God. How does that happen? I don't know about you, but that thought is disturbing. The thought that godly parents or parents that follow God, that they could lose the whole next generation that no longer feared God and pursued him, that's messed up. How in the world does something like that take place? 
right? And so what, 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 what we find is, is this, is when we first look at that scripture, we might tend to think that the problem here is ignorance, one of ignorance, that when it says that they did not know the Lord or the works that had been done with the Lord, that somehow maybe they just never heard the stories. Uh, maybe their parents dropped the ball and they just didn't open the Bible with them and, and share them the stories in the Old Testament or teach them doctrine or teach them the truth of God's grace. But, but if that was the case, certainly that would be sad, yes? A parent not teaching and training their kids in, in, in the way of the Lord in the scriptures, that's sad. But it's even sadder what's going on here. Because what's going on here is they actually did hear about God. They actually did hear about all that God did. The difference is they know about him, but they don't know him. You know the difference between the two? They know about him, but you don't know him. If you live in Nassau County, which most of you probably do, you are well aware that there are people who know a lot about God, but they don't know him. They're convinced that they know him. They are convinced that they're born again. But all you have to do is talk with them for a period of time, and you're like, bro, this is not what it means to know God. Sometimes, even in our culture, we have to kind of change the vernacular that we use, the, the language that we use with people. I, I, I've said this before. I never ask people anymore, are you a Christian? Because, yes, they're a Christian, pretty much, given. You Christian? Yes. Okay, i got to ask you a different question because that's, that's not working. Uh, what I'm asking you is, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Are you a, a disciple of Jesus Christ? Then normally what I get in, from folks in Nassau County is, well, what do you mean by that? Then I really begin to really get into the gospel there, right? Here's another way to say it. May not be as good, but I, I think it helps us when it says when it's using this word "no," is 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 this is okay? I know you know about Jesus. I know that you've asked him into the God-sized hole of your heart, right? I know that you say that you 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 believe in him and that you're a Christian. I know that you know a lot about Jesus. Let me ask you this: Are you living what you know about Jesus out in your life? Are you living what you know? And this particular generation was not living out what they cognitively, mentally knew to be true about God. They were lost. Now, the question is, who's to blame? Who's to blame? Parents not raising their kids in the right way, really not uh, raising them in the admonition of Jesus Christ. Is that why this whole generation is ultimately lost? Or does the blame really rest with with the young people uh, because they heard the truth, but they didn't actually receive the truth them, into themselves. I think it's almost impossible to say whose who's, who's, who's fault it is and finding fault, right? Um, it probably is a little bit of both. Parents certainly failing in the way that we should be raising up our kids in the admonition of Christ. Children failing to believe and to embrace what it is that is being taught. But, but let me kind of relieve some of you this morning. We're not talking about blame this morning. Isn't that great? We're not going to talk about who's to blame. There's probably parents in here, I know there were in the first service, that have young people and and, and children who are lost as a dog in high weeds. They're not born again. They're not saved. I don't think that any of us, if you're a parent in here, any of us need to hear a message about how we blew it, right? Here's why. Because every parent that I know is ultra sensitive to their downfalls and their mistakes with their kids. Okay, if we were to all of a sudden, like in first century, all begin to talk back and forth, and I was to bring up the subject and said, hey, brother, why don't you share just a couple minutes about your faults? We would be here till dinner 
You guys got that right. And when I say dinner, I don't mean dinner tonight, dinner next Thursday, all right? We would all be sitting there going, man, and we'd probably be weeping together. Here's what I did, and here's what I didn't do, and this is why my kid's life is so messed up, and we would begin doing all that. And here's what I'm saying. I'm not saying that there's never a place for that, but I don't think today is the place for that. What I'd rather do, and this is what I try to get people to understand, you can't do anything about the past. Uh, unless you have a time machine, which is really cool. I'd love to ride in it. But, but unless you have a time machine, you can't do anything about the past. All you could do is the present. So let's look at the present. Let's look to the future, not about where we failed, but where we can ultimately achieve what it is that God has called us to do. Let me, let me just say a couple things this morning. I think for us, I, I think what we're gonna do is we could camp out in Judges, but instead I wanna camp out in Deuteronomy chapter six. Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter six, if you will. Because in, in six, we could certainly look and, and talk about how that first generation was to blame for much of what happened to the second generation. But Deuteronomy chapter six actually shows us how to go about leading the next generation to faith in Christ. Now, let me make sure you understand this. Deuteronomy chapter six, if you're a homeschooler, you're like, yeah, Deuteronomy chapter six, I got a tattooed. All right, that's, that's just how homeschoolers are, all right? Uh, and everything, this is why we homeschool Deuteronomy chapter six. And so they got it on mugs and, and, and cheesy, like, like carpet rugged uh, things up on the wall. It's, it's really strange. But anyway, um, but, but what happens here is this is not, the scripture is not a promise. It's not some kind of system. It's not some kind of mysterious kind of magic spell that if you just follow these things, then you're guaranteed that your children will come to faith in Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? Do you understand that you have no power of redeeming and saving and regenerating your children? Do you understand that? You, you don't have that ability as much as you wish that you could. You can't. But, and, and you could do almost everything right and maybe still not see. Look, I know that's hard to hear but them still maybe not come to faith in Jesus Christ. But here's what God wants you to do. He wants you to be obedient to what he's called you to do. And he wants you to set an environment within your home to raise up your kids in such a way that God can work in their lives through what it is that you're laying out for them. Does that make sense? Now, here's one thing that we often do at Celebration. Huge emphasis on study here, right? You guys have gotten that, right? Study the word, Understand the word and teach your kids the word. So we're constantly emphasizing, parents, if you've never heard this, you should if you've been here for any time, your responsibility to raise your kids and to teach them the word of God. And we emphasize that all the time. And we try to do it. We try to come alongside of you here at church. Uh, children's program, amazing curriculum we're using to teach them the word. Youth program, David, or, or, or um, uh, our youth pastor, I can't even think of his name, Dan. Sorry, Dan, love you, um, uh, is, uh, is, is teaching the word. We're trying to teach the word as you bring your families in here each Sunday morning. But let me tell you what we're doing more. What we're doing is we're discipling moms and dads for them to know how to study the word of God so they can in turn study it and then teach their kids in the word of God how to study the word of God. Uh, Dan, uh, again, I do remember his name. Dan uh, does two sessions a year trying to teach our families of how to engage their children with the gospel, uh, how to teach and engage their kids in the word of God. We've got all those things laid out, but it is the primary responsibility for the parent to teach. Okay, and so when we talk about teaching, we're talking a lot about that systematic manner in which we're teaching, right? Sit down, have, have quiet time, uh, sit down with your, and have family devotions and break open the Bible and walk them through the scriptures and teach them doctrine and teach them what you believe, right? That's what we're talking about. But what the scriptures tell, you, tell us is that's just one side of the coin. 
Teaching them systematically the truths of the word of God is only one half of the coin of how we really need to be teaching our children. And here in Deuteronomy chapter, chapter four, uh, six, it teaches us other ways that we should be teaching our children. Let me, let me give you three of them this morning. First of all, we have to teach our children through our passion. We have to teach our children through our passion. Notice, if you will, Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. That's called the Shema. This is, the, this is some of the highest, most important scriptures uh, for the Jewish people. Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Achad. That's all the Hebrew I remember from two years of it. All right, that's it. And so, uh, but it's that important to the Jewish people. You, you with me? And now notice this next part. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And the words that I command you shall be on your heart. What does that mean? So, much, so many of us are probably overly familiar with that text of Scripture. To love the Lord the God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. There have been volumes, literally hundreds of thousands of pages in commentaries and other books that have been written on this very verse, trying to unpack the deep meanings of all of those things, of what that looks like to love God in such a way. Because I'm more of a simplistic person, uh, let me just boil it down for you. What, is, what does he mean by that? What he means is that God, that he is to be your greatest pursuit over all things. That's what it means to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. It means that, that your greatest energies, your greatest affections, your greatest focus, your greatest intent, your greatest determinations are directed towards pursuing and knowing God. Listen, it's, it's okay to, to like things. It's okay to, to have hobbies. Did, did you hear that? Everybody breathe. It's okay, all right? I know as a Christian, we're like, so we're gonna, we're supposed to be worshiping God like always? And the Bible says that we're supposed to pray without ceasing? How am I ever gonna get anything done, right? That's, that's kind of my thought. But, but the idea is, it's, it's, let me just, it's okay to like stuff. It, it's okay. You know, people like cars. They tinker with cars. I don't because I break things. And so I don't tinker with them. Some people like fishing. Guys, it's okay some of you like any fishermen. Some people like hunting. Some people like cats, right? Some people like cats. Um, and cats, cats are their hobby. You know, they collect them, and they collect cat stuff, and, and, and they, um, I don't know why they do that. So, but, they, but they collect cat stuff. They like cats. Listen, that's not, that's not wrong. It's, 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 not, it's not inherently evil. Now, it's weird, but it's not inherently evil for, 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 for all that to, to, to go on. What, what I'm trying to say is, hey, we can like other things, but here's what the scripture is trying to say us. But no matter how much love or direction or pursuit that you have for those things and you gravitate towards those things, it must pale in comparison for your pursuit of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is how Jesus says it. Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, he says, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's rough, right? I mean, that's deep. What's Jesus doing here? Is he promoting hatred, right? Look, you can't, you can't be a disciple unless you, you can't be my disciple unless you hate your parents. We got some kids going, hey, I can be a disciple, all right? I got no problem with that, right? That's, he's not promoting Hate here. here. Why? Because the whole rest of the Bible tells us to love one another. 
and, and, and even to love our enemies we're to love. There's no one that we're supposed to hate. We're supposed to love them in Christ. But what is he, what is he saying then there? What, what, what is he saying? He's saying, hey, listen, uh, I know that you love these things. I know you pursue these things. I know that you have interests. I know that there's things that you like. It's okay. All things have been, cre- been created for my glory and for your pleasure, all right? That's fine. But your love, your, your affections, your pursuit for Jesus Christ has to be so far greater and you're pursuing to know him, to be like him, and to find him and, and, and to, to serve him. It has to be so much greater than all the other things that, that your pursuit for those things appears as hatred compared to your, your pursuit and your passion for Jesus Christ. It's huge. And, and what, what I think Deuter- the author of Deuteronomy is saying is that's the kind of parents we need to be, people that are passionate about God. Let me ask you this question. Um, if, you, if your kids were to take a test, say, hey, w- first thing that comes to your mind when you think of dad, what do you think of? All right, and don't say jerk or anything like that. What, 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 what is it that you think of, all right? It might be great businessman. Hey, great fisherman. Hey, 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 hey great, great hunter. But here's the thing, parents, we don't want that to be the first thing that comes to their mind. We don't want it to be. They're okay things, but we don't want it to be the first thing that comes to our mind. One of the most depressing things for me is, is to hear a eulogy at a funeral. It's, it's, it's so sad. Why? People get up there, and what do they talk about almost all of the time? How, 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 how dad loved gardening, and he loved his radishes, and he could grow the biggest radishes you've ever seen. They were the best radishes in Northeast Florida. He was the rash man, right? Or radish man, not the rash man. That would be weird. And so he's the radish man. Okay, and then at the end, it's kind of like, oh yeah, uh, asterisk, he loved Jesus too. He was faithful to God as well. It's kind of like this footnote of his life. Your pursuit of Jesus ought not to be a footnote. If, there, if you're going to like things like fishing and hunting and whatever it is, it's cats, whatever it is, it, that should be the footnote. It should be the man of God who liked cats, right? Or the man of God who liked fishing, not the fisherman who also was faithful to God. This is what the scripture is saying. You know, it's not hard for us to determine what the passions are of each other. Just look at the money trail, man. Look at the money trail. Look at the time. Where, where's the time spent? Where, is, is it football? Is it, is it football tickets? Is it, is it percent? You, you get the point, right? But, but you know how we know what people are most passionate about? By what's coming out of their mouth. Just listen. Listen to people. The Bible says out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, which means if it's on the heart, it's going to be on the lips. And, and you sit back. And, and, and dads, if we're constantly talking about football, what's on our heart? Football. Hunting. Hunting. But where do we want to be? We want to be men and women of God whose greatest pursuit is Jesus Christ. He is on our heart and in our affections so that when we speak, the primary thing that comes out is Jesus. You with me? He says that's how we ought to be teaching our children through our passion and our pursuit for Christ. Second thing, not only are we to teach our children through our passion, but we are to teach our children through our practice. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7 says this, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You see what he's doing? Hey, they wake up in the morning, talk about it. Go to bed, walk about it, talk about it. When you're walking around, talk about it. This is how some people have interpreted this, and I don't think this is the meaning of the text. I don't think it means wake up lecturing your children about what the Bible says and lecture them all day until they go to bed. 
So in other words, you're off the hook. You don't have to break open Wayne Grudem's systematic theology and wake your kids up by reading on ontological and epistemological arguments. Okay, you don't have to do that. All right, and when they're going to bed, you don't have to read Warren Wearsby's B series through the Bible to them from Genesis to Revelation. It's not what the Bible is teaching. This is what it's teaching. The emphasis is not so much on what you're saying, but rather the emphasis is on what you're doing. The emphasis is that what you're teaching to your children is absolutely and completely evident through the way that you're living your life before your children. That you're living your life in such a way that they understand that God is not a part of your life. That Jesus Christ and God in this whole redemptive plan for mankind is your life. That's what everything, everything else revolves around that. That, that he's a part of the everyday routine. We, we have this tendency to, to compartmentalize our lives, don't we, from God? I mean, here we have work, man. Lots of stuff going on work, 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 work. Hey, we gotta go to church. Well, listen, I just don't have time for the spiritual right now, I've got work going on. You guys feel that tension? <coughs> I got work. I've got family. I've got finances. These are all things I got to do. Then I've got this little uh, section over here that's about God, and I just don't have time for that over there. And he says, that's not how we're supposed to be living our lives before kids. You live your life so that God saturates everything. So it's, it's, it's not God over here and business over here. It's, it's God in business. It's God in my work. It's God in my free time. It's God in my finances. It's God in my entertainment. He saturates every single part of all of that. So the values and teachings that you teach your children are to be taught orally, but more importantly, they are to be lived out visibly before them. You model what the scriptures look like. Now, last week we talked about that. Remember back in chapter one, the people were told very clearly to drive out and to eradicate uh, all of those that were dwelling, all the inhabitants of Canaan, drive them out, every single last one of them. And, uh, and that was very clear to them. And there's no doubt to me that their children would have been very clear about God's command as well. I mean, they would have been like, is dad coming home tonight? No, he's, he's working. Where is he working? Well, you know, they're slaying the, the, the whateverites, you know, over there. That's, that's what he's doing. Can't come home. Why? Well, he can't come home until we eradicate them all until they're all gone, until they're all pushed out, until they all leave so that none are ultimately left. So they would be reminded of these things. They would understand every time they had to pick up and move again. We're moving again? Yes, because we're not really exactly to the place where we need to be. This isn't our property. This is Aaron's property. And so we need to, we need to come over here. We're still working towards it. You, you guys with me? So they would have understood in their whole life what the clear command of God was to do, eradicate and to drive out the inhabitants. But then guess what we saw in chapter one? We saw them obey it mostly, their parents. Uh, what they did was they said, we're going to mostly obey you. And you guys know that mostly obeying God is completely disobeying God. You guys understand that? And so what they do is they said, we're going to drive most of them out when it was convenient. But when it wasn't convenient, they decided to become disobedient to God. We, we unpacked this last week. They decided, remember, they decided that, listen, if we push them out, it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. We're going to lose some manpower. Let's be reasonable. Let's make a reasonable compromise, and let's just enslave them, and we'll have them do our laundry. If they do our laundry, we'll have more free time to have Bible study with our children. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Do you see the compromise? So they called it reasonable compromise. Their children, the lost generation, viewed it as hypocrisy. And there's one thing that I see in children more than anything is they can smell hypocrisy a million miles away. They can see it. They know when their parents truly believe what it is that they're telling them. 
They know very clearly that when the parents are talking, whether they're lecturing them or whether what they're saying they truly believe, because if they believe it, they submit themselves to it. Are you with me? And so that, that's what they need to see. To, to say that we believe the Bible and to teach the Bible to your kids and to expect them to live by it and demand that they live by it, but for you and I not to live it when it's inconvenient to us, it sends a message that they can do the same. We're just basically saying, and, and you hear parents all the time. They're not really walking with the Lord. They're not, this, this, is, this is what happens all the time. Do you think that the, the kids see through what happens when parents, when things begin to go really, really wrong for them, and all of a sudden, dad says, let's get back to church, and we come back to church when things are bad, when things are good, we come back out of church again, and we're in, and we're out. You guys tracking with me? Don't you think that kids see through that? Don't you think that they look at that and see that there's inconsistency there, and that the truth of the matter is what it's saying is, hey, as long as it's convenient for you, do it. When it's not, don't do it. If it benefits you, seek God. If it doesn't benefit you, then don't seek God. What we need is we need parents that will practice what it is that they're preaching. Third thing that the text says, teach our children, teach our children through our past. So not only through our passion, not only through our, uh, our practices, but also through our past. Now, notice this. <clears throat> Look at verse 20. Chapter 6, verse 20. It says, when your son asks you, in time to come. He says, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? He says, then you shall say to your son, we, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders and, and great and grievous and against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us, uh, us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give it to our fathers. What is it that God was commanding the Israelites to do here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 20? What's he telling them to do? He says, at some time, your, your kids, you're going to be telling them the rules and regulations of what they ought to be doing to serve God. But then I want you to tell them and always keep in front of them of why they're doing what they're doing. And he says, when they ask you, why are we doing this? Why, why, why are we living our lives this way? He says, bring them, now notice this, bring them back to the gospel. That's what it is in the Old Testament. When you look back to the Old Testament, when you look at Egypt, when you look at the people and how they got there, how did, how did they become slaves in Egypt? Through their own disobedience. Through their own disobedience, they were enslaved for hundreds of years. God, in his grace and his mercy, hears their calls. What does he do? He saves them out of it. He saves them out of it, not because they did anything. Did, did they have any part in it? Did, did the people perform any of the miracles? No, it was all a work from God. And what does he do? He takes them out of Egypt and he takes them into where? The promised land, a place where God would dwell and the people would fully submit themselves to God. It's a picture of the gospel. He says, take them back to the gospel. And this is the way that we do it. There's a personal uh, essence here. There's a, there's a personal emphasis. He says, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. He says, tell them the gospel personally. In other words, begin with your testimony with your kids. It's not just that you want to get up and tell your kids all that God has done in the Bible and to teach them all the different truths about what the gospel is and, and make sure that they understand it intellectually. Here, here's a thought. Make the gospel, gospel personal to them. Set them aside and say, Hey guys, time's gone by, but I want to share with you how God saved me. 
I want to share you my story of how God saved me. And talk about how you were apart from him, what you were alike apart from him. And tell him how you came accustomed and you understood your sinfulness and, and you heard the good news of Jesus Christ and his grace and his mercy. So you repented and you turned from that and you placed your faith in the completed work of Christ and God saved you. And because of that, he's changed your life. Great place to start. Start with the gospel, specifically your own personal account of how the, the gospel became real. The idea is don't allow what you're teaching your kids to remain academic. Show them through your own life how those doctrines have worked in your own life and how God has been faithful to do it. Sit back and do this. Listen, it says, uh, share with your children how God has been faithful in specific times of your life. You guys remember those times? Some of you are living them right now. I mean, we've got some great testimonies of people going, man, we didn't know what we're going to do. We lost a job. Everything seemed to be falling apart, but God has been unbelievably faithful. Go to your children and say, let me tell you all the ways that God has been faithful to us in our family. Share it with them. Uh, share with them your struggles to grow in your faith. Don't, don't make, please don't make this Christian life out to be this easy thing. That this Christian life, man, is all you got to do is you just got to have it all together. This is what God requires of us. So why can't you hold up to that standard? Well, that's why you need Jesus, because you can't hold up to the standard. I can't, I can't, I can't do it. So, so share with them, even though I'm saved by grace, through faith, here's a couple areas I'm struggling with, guys. Would you pray for me? I, I was able to do this this last week and had my kids go, Dad, we're going to pray for you about this. Do you know what it's like? For you to lay bare your heart with your kids and sit there and go, man, this is where I'm failing. And even to go to them and go, I need you to forgive me. I've, I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you and I, I need you to forgive me. I did what was wrong in the sight of God. And not only be broken over it, but see and allow them to see the clear repentance from it. And in what you say, hey, listen, will you forgive me? Then to sit there and go, God, through your strength, and through your power, I'm now, this is how I'm going to live in obedience to God, what he's called me to do. What our children need to see. Share with them the times that you've blown it. Share the times that God's grace has sustained you. Share the victories. Share all of those things with him. Here, here's, the bottom, here's, here's what I'm trying to say in this last point. Let them, your kids, Remember the big emphasis, teach them, teach them, teach them, teach them, teach them, teach them here, teach them there. We need to teach them the word of God, systematically teaching them the word of God. But here's, here's kind of the culmination. Let, let them see, let your children see your faith as not static, sterile, informal, but it's alive, growing, and warm. Let them know that it's a real, true, intimate relationship between you and your Savior and live that out before your kids. Live that out before your kids. You know, we could say that the second generation really had all the reason in the world to fall away because they were kind of at a disadvantage. They, they, by the Bible's own admission, they did not see the works of God. They, they didn't see, they weren't there when God separated uh, the, the river. They weren't there when God knocked down the walls. They, they weren't there to see any of that. So the former generation, we could say, had a great advantage over the second because the second generation didn't see him work. But you could say it for them, but you could say it for almost every generation after that, right? They didn't see those things. But God still wants each generation to see in the previous generation the works of God. How do they say it? In them. The way that they were going to see the mighty hand of God was not through the rivers parting, 
The way they were going to see the mighty hands of God was through the radical transformation of their parents before them as God continued. Oh, God, that's, that's what you need to see. And look, look, I, I know we get to this point, and let's back up, because really, this whole thing afterwards, it was, I was like, I got done preaching, I was like, man, what an encouraging sermon. And God was like, dude, that was so discouraging. I'm like, what? This is encouraging. But I understand the discouraging part. And the discouraging part could be like this. You could sit back and you could say, all right, so I've got to live this life that is completely and full of passion for God and seeking him and seeking his ways. But you might sit back and you're like, it's just not my greatest passion. Let's call it what it is. Can we just be that raw and that just, before we take it to the Lord's Supper this morning, literally just sit back and go, just not my greatest passion. And if it's not, what do you do? Cry out for mercy and grace. Say, God, make you my all in all. Help me to pursue you above all else. Help me to be committed to you above all else. And then God's going to work on that through the rest of your life. The, the, until you die, you'll be working through. And, and maybe for this morning, maybe there's some right now that you've been teaching your kids certain ways and that we're submitting to God, but you know very clearly in your own life right now that what you're doing and how you're living, whether it's in finances or, or business or entertainment or whatever, is completely inconsistent with what it is that you've been teaching your children. It's a great place to change. And here's the thing. It's a great way to go to your children, seek forgiveness, and let them know how God's working in your life. Teach them through your past. Let's pray.